You're listening to a message from Spindle City Vineyard. Connect with us or find out more at spindlecityvineyard.com. Oh man, it is so good to be here this morning. We have had just such a great weekend together. Um, I have loved being here. I was looking forward to this for a good long while. Do I need to... Am I... I'm a... Oh, Hello. <laughs> um, I've been looking forward to being here for a while. I just have, I know I said this on Friday night, but I just have tremendous respect for, for Brittany and for this church here. You guys are awesome, and I love, I love what God's doing here, and it's such an honor to be here just for uh, a little bit of that and to journey together for this weekend, and um, I hope we can keep intersecting together as the Lord kind of puts that together moving forward, whatever that looks like. This morning, I wanted to take the time that we have together and talk about what is this thing that we're trying to do called church. This is a, uh, a, a total right turn from this weekend. We spent a lot of this weekend talking about Holy Spirit, um, meeting Him, learning how to uh, interact with Him. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a topic that is not wholly unrelated, but is not necessarily exactly adjacent. Um, and that is, like, what is this thing called church? And the reason I bring that up is I am convinced that we are in a time right now in our country where we need, as the church, to start radically thinking outside the box and start trying a lot of stuff that's really different from what we've done in the past. Um, you know, if, if you do things like look at the stats and you just go like, Hey, like, so how's this whole thing going lately? <laughs> the answer's not encouraging. <laughs> um, basically, if you look at uh, the year 2000 compared to today, in the last 22 years, uh, half the people who went to church 20 years ago don't go to church anymore. Um, that's not encouraging. Uh, I don't know about you. That's not encouraging. Um, you could add to that the fact that every generation of the last four, so going from, uh, I forget what you call the pre-boomers, what do you call the pre-boomers, traditionalists? The greatest generation, or the builder generation, we'll go with that. Yeah, that doesn't make them sound better than the rest of us at all. They, they were, they fought World War II, right? Um, so if you look at them, and then you look at the boomers, then you look at Gen X, then you look at millennials, then you look at Gen Z, every generation has a significant stair step down in church engagement and in church participation. We, as a millennial, I'm an early millennial, we early millennials at the peak are the lowest the boomers have ever been. And I look down and I look at Gen Z and I'm like, oh, there's a lot less there. <laughs> so we're in a place where generation by generation and year by year, apparently, we're connecting less and less effectively as time goes on. Now, there's a couple of questions I have with respect to that. What is the problem that's causing that? Now, first question is, is the problem that Jesus has failed? Is Jesus not able to deal with the challenges of the 21st century in Western culture? I suspect the answer is no. I suspect that Jesus has not been defeated 
by postmodern culture in America. I don't think that's what's happening. Has the gospel failed? Has it lost its transformative power somewhere between the boomers and Gen X? Like, did it just disappear? No, clearly that's not what we believe. So what is the problem here? If the gospel's still transformative, if Jesus still is the answer to the problems in the world, then why is whatever's happening now happening? And, and the only answer I can come up with is a slight generalization of that, which is we're not affecting the culture well. We're not meeting them in a way that they actually understand and they need. Their needs have not diminished at all. If anything, they, I would guess they may have grown. The problem is they don't recognize that what we have answers what the culture needs. And if they don't recognize that, that's actually on us. It's our job to deliver the gospel, to bring Jesus to the culture in a way that's recognizable, where they go, oh, that is what I'm looking for. That is what I need. I think that that's important. So what we have is actually kind of a missionary task, so to speak, a task of contextualization. And I think it's not simply a matter of contextualizing the message. It's not that we need to proclaim the gospel better, although we can always grow in that and we should. I think part of the challenge, at least it looks to me, is it looks like the shape of the whole world is changing. And this isn't the first time the shape in the whole world has changed. It happens every few hundred years or so when society and culture kind of dramatically reinvents itself. Um, four or five hundred years ago, there's a period of time called the Renaissance, which resulted in a reinvention of the arts, the invention of science, a reinvention of politics, of nation states, of economics, and so on and so on and so on. The whole landscape of the whole world changed in a dramatic way that went far beyond all the change that had happened in the 500 years prior. It's really interesting. We can kind of think society changes in this sort of like linear, incremental curve. That's not what happens. Society changes in stair steps. And the Renaissance was a vertical change, and then it kind of leveled off and stayed the same. Another vertical change happened in the Industrial Revolution and manufacturing and these kinds of things were developed in a different schema, and all of a sudden, the, the sort of local company can now influence and connect to the entire world. In both of those times, the church had to reinvent itself as well. In the Renaissance, the church reinvented itself with this thing called um, the Reformation, and there's the development of Protestant Christianity. It happened at the same time for a reason. And it's because the old shape of the church before the Renaissance couldn't fit the new world on the new plateau. And so God reinvents the church along with the shape of the world so that there's a meaningful means of effectiveness that can reach in the church. The same thing happens in the Industrial Revolution. That's when, incidentally, the world reinvents, or the church rediscovers world missions. Christianity becomes missional for the first time ever at the exact peak of the Industrial Revolution. It's fascinating. I wonder if we might be on another one of those stair steps with this thing called the Digital Revolution. And if that's the case, it sure looks to me like our road forward 
is to realize there's a new shape of the church that exists in the post-digital revolution world, and we haven't found it yet. And we're not going to find it unless we start getting way out of the box. This is not a small change. This is a massive overhaul. So because of that, the question that comes to the surface whenever you're like, it's time to do radical experimentation, is, okay, well, how do I know, like, what's the anchor point that I hold on to while I vary things? Because not everything that we could try maybe would be church. How do we know when we're doing, quote, church, and how do we know when we're not? Because, you know, you go far enough, you might, you might wander off into a place where you're not doing church anymore. So, like, where, what exactly is that? What, what's, what's the foundation we're working on? That's a really important question to have a really good answer to. Otherwise, <laughs> you're just going to give me my sermon for me this morning, aren't you? That's a really important question to have a really good answer to. Otherwise, you'll do one of two things. You'll just go anywhere, and goodness knows where you wind up. Or you'll go, I don't want to fall off the cliff, so I'm going to stay real close to where I'm at. And you won't very much. We won't find the solution. So what is the church? What exactly is this thing we're trying to do? Well, let me, let me introduce a few of the most common answers. Some of them are answers that we say. Some of them are answers that we act like but don't say. And uh, then let's, let's look at what it sure looks to me like the scripture describes as this thing called the church. Okay, the first one is maybe the church is a building. And most of us Protestants immediately go, that's not the right answer. But I would say, well, hold on. Because we go to church in a place called a building. And when people say, I go to a church, you know what they label? They label the building. Right? Oh, I go to Spindle City Vineyard. Well, where's that? Well, that's this building. We call it a church building. <laughs> right? So it's one of those things where we might, we might immediately go, well, that's not the right answer, but we do talk like it's what we actually think the answer is, if we're honest, right? And, um, you know, maybe that's okay, maybe that's not okay, I don't know. I mean, they're certainly helpful to be able to identify where it is that we gather together to do whatever this thing is that's called church. I'm not saying we shouldn't call them church buildings. Um, but, you know, as we would likely guess, the idea of church is a building isn't really what the New Testament is talking about. Um, in Acts 2, verses 42 and 40 through 47, just a quick illustration of this. This is sort of one of those summary statements where um, it's talking about, you know, every once in a while in Acts, Luke sort of writes these summary statements. And here's how the church was doing kind of on, as a whole. And, and he includes a bunch of things, um, but skipping down to the bottom, he says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking their bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So this is an interesting picture, right? They are described as meeting together in a building, the temple. 
but they're also described as meeting together in homes. And you sort of have this idea that it's this like overflowing activity that's kind of spilling into all kinds of corners of the believer's life. And so is it connected to a building? It actually is connected to a building. It's just not isolated to a building. Not the entirety of this thing that's called church is connected to a building. So, okay, maybe the church isn't a building. Well, maybe the church is, is, a, is a meeting, right? That's another thing we do. Like, where do you go to church? Oh, I go to church. It's at 1030 at blank, <laughs> right? Maybe the church is a scheduled gathering. Well, once again, I would add, well... That's probably not what's going on. And again, you kind of get the sense that like what Luke is portraying here doesn't feel like that to me. He's portraying a lifestyle. He's not portraying an event, right? Yeah, they probably had to gather as an event in the temple. You know, it's like, hey, everybody's getting together at, you know, whatever time at the temple. That's cool. But you also have the idea that it appears to be integrated into their life in this kind of like ongoing thing. Okay. Church isn't a building. Church isn't a meeting. Here's another one that we, th- we will say is wrong, but we act like is true. The church is an organization. Um, this is, again, kind of a less common thought. Although, interestingly, if you dive into like church leadership literature and things like that, which has become far more popular in the last, I don't know, 25, 30 years, um, there's a lot more thought along this direction than you might think. And what's kind of happened here is this interesting blending together of, if you think about what you're saying when you say the church is an organization, you're actually blending together the legal structure of the United States with the thing that we're doing here and whatever that we call church. My first thought would be, well, that can't possibly be right, right? Because uh, that legal structure is dependent on this country. What happens when you go to a country where it's illegal to have a church? Does that mean there's no church happening there? Clearly, that's not what that means. There is a church in China. There's a church in Iran. There's a church in many places where there's no organizations that are registered as churches. I don't think it's bad to have a registered organization as a church. But I do think it's important to be clear on the difference and the distinction between legal entities and things called church. And before you say, well, we don't think that at all, I would say, well, I've not yet seen a senior pastor's job description that doesn't describe running an organization. So you can tell me that's not what we believe (laughs) as much as you want. The fact is, every pastor I've ever met, their job is to run an organization. So don't tell me that we don't believe that. We just think we don't believe that. <laughs> we, we want to not believe that, but we act like that's true. In Acts 6, we have another um, example, which is interesting to me. This is, um, this is one of the moments in the scriptures where the church runs into um, a logistical problem to solve. In Acts 6, it says, Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, those are the believers who speak Greek instead of uh, Aramaic. And so there's a little bit of uh, maybe ethnic tension there or something like that. Um, A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Uh Uh-oh. 
partiality, that's maybe not good. Now, was it on purpose? This probably wasn't malevolent. These things are complex, right? And it, you sort of get the picture that, like, there's not a whole lot of organization that's happening at this point. So it's probably not on purpose. It's just sort of in the organic ways of, like, oh, yeah, you talk to so-and-so if you need food or whatever. And, and in the broad base of that, it becomes clear, oh, this group of people isn't being treated the same as that group of people. And that's not what Jesus is about. So this is a problem to solve. And it says the 12 summoned the full number of disciples, and they said this, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom will appoint this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. When they said, please the whole gathering, and they chose these seven people, and they set before them the apostles, they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And as a result, the word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient in the faith. What's interesting to me is that when an organizational problem arises in the early church, the apostles intentionally avoid acting like the CEO. Like we have a structural problem that requires an organizational solution, and it would be wrong for us to do that instead of this other thing. I've never seen a senior pastor act that way in the church. We sort of assume a senior pastor's job is to keep this thing running. Well, maybe we actually do believe the church is an organization. Is that the case? Well, I don't think it has to be, because like I said, it sure seems like there's places in the world where that's not the case at all. But then what is supposed to be the job of the senior pastor, and how does that work? I'm going to throw lots of questions out there. I'll give you less answers than you would like. Okay, we're going to press in. This is the last misnomer, and this one's my favorite, because this is the one that everybody thinks is the right answer and isn't. We say the church is a people. The church isn't a place, it's a people. I've heard this like a thousand times, right? And look, hey, this is better than saying the church is a people, but I want to suggest this is actually not what the New Testament is talking about when it's talking about the term the church. What it does is that conflates and confuses one element of the church for another. Look, we know that the church does not exist in this physical structure. And so sometimes what we do is we go, well, God cares about people, right? And so if God cares about people, and if when you get saved, you become a part of the church in some way that we don't totally understand, then apparently the church is the set of people who are believers, and my principal concern with that is that that's not the word that the New Testament uses to describe the set of people who are believers. There's a really well-defined term that shows up like probably at least a hundred times in the New Testament to describe the set of people who are believers, and that word is the saints. The saints are the group of people who are following Jesus. The church is actually something different than that. Now, I think what we kind of did is we, we swung, we, I mean, when you're trying to find truth, this is what you almost always do, right? You sort of swing from one end to the other. We know that in some sense, church involves some, some togetherness thing, right? 
And so it's easy to look at the concrete stuff first. It's a building. Well, the togetherness thing is happening in a building, so I understand how that's the case. But if you go, oh, no, 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 it's not supposed to be a building, then what you do is you grab the other part you can point to. It's the people who are in the building. That's what the church is. Actually, the church is something different than either of those, although it's kind of interrelated with both of them. The word ecclesia, which is translated church in the Bible, actually comes with a historical definition attached to it. The Paul and the early church didn't invent this word. It was a word that had some context to it. And specifically, it was um, a context that was from um, kind of the political process that existed in the ancient Greek world. In the ancient Greek world, they were trying to figure out things like democracy and so on, interestingly. And they had a thing that they de designated called the ecclesia, where what would happen was, on some rhythm, a city would invite all of its citizens, citizens, appointed people from the city, and would invite all of them to a specific meeting in a specific place where in which they would debate things that mattered for the jurisdiction of the city. It was kind of a, we're going to get everybody together and hash out the problems that need to be solved in this city that we live in. And so the idea of ecclesia was actually kind of like a governmental function in the ancient world. Now, <clears throat> what this ecclesia was not was the citizens. And that's the mistake we make when we say the church is the people of God. We're confusing the ecclesia gathering with the people who go to the gathering. That's just as big a confusion as confusing the ecclesia gathering with the building the gathering happens in. They're both confusing the sort of one element of it for the whole. The point of the ecclesia gathering was that there exists a time and a place where the group of people entrusted with the stewardship of the city would come together and co-participate with one another unto the ends of that stewardship. In other words, the word is actually translated gathering, not people and not location. This idea of church is not just connected to people, it's not just connected to, to location, it's actually connected to something that happens between and among us in a unique time and a unique place. The ecclesia, the Greek idea, was this is the unique time and the unique place when we as citizens have carved out to steward our city. If you go over here and you try and steward our city in another way, that's not the right way to do it. This gathering is appointed for the stewardship of our city. And so we come together and together we steward. It referred to the gathering, although it necessarily, of course, had to include people and a place because the gathering requires a people and a place. When you look carefully at the church, what I want to propose this morning is church is not the people of God, and it's not the building that we gather in, and it's not the organization that helps us steward the legal resources, and it's not the calendar of the scheduling of the meeting. Church is a spiritual dynamic that happens among the people of God. 
just like there was a governmental dynamic that happened among the citizens of the Greek city-state. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul, when he's talking, this is such an interesting verse, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, it's like in the header of one of his letters, which he almost always has. It says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, so yeah, he has the idea of, of saints in there. He's talking about the people, but look at this. The church of God is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, that's, that's people, right? Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Church isn't about being a saint, it's about being a saint together. Church is about a thing that happens, that God does uniquely, a spiritual dynamic that happens between and among believers when believers get together in the name of Jesus. Now this might feel kind of abstract, it might sort of feel out there and a little like, but that's a little bit of a weird thought. This is all over the New Testament. If you look anywhere in the New Testament where they actually get into the nuts and bones of the church, these ideas pop out to the surface all over the place. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ, you collectively, y'all are the body of Christ, and individually you're members of it. Individually, you're a saint. Collectively, we're this thing called the church. Something's happening bigger than us, kind of around and between us. In um, 1 Peter 2, Peter writes this, you come to him a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. That's Jesus. You offer yourselves like living stones being built up as a spiritual house, built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Church is this thing like, God works in each of us individually, right? And it's good and it's beautiful. Individually, we have the choice whether we're going to orient our lives around the lordship of Jesus or not, right? And that's a personal choice. Nobody makes that for you. Your pastor doesn't make it for you. Your mom doesn't make it for you. Your spouse doesn't make it for you. That's an individual choice. We individually orient our lives around the, the lordship of Jesus, but once we have individually oriented our lives around the lordship of Jesus, we find that what Jesus does is simultaneously in us individually, but he also does things in us as collectives. And the things that he does in us in, as collectives are every bit of real, every bit is spiritual, and every bit as important to the kingdom as what he does in us individually. And part of the challenge that we have as the Western church is we've actually lost that concept. And this is why I'm here telling you the church is not the people of God. You define it that way, you erase those collective spiritual dynamics. You categorically push them out of the picture and the church becomes about one function. And this is how we treat the purpose of the church. The church exists to disciple you. Because the only thing I have spiritual imagination for is God working in an individual. But the church is actually a richer, more dynamic, spiritual thing that God does among and between us that is meant to come alongside and reinforce and support and enrich in what God is doing within us individually. 
I've got a, um, a picture that, or a, a visual that I think um, might kind of help clarify a little bit of this. There's a video I think we sent. You guys, you guys got the video back there? Let me just give you a bit of context here. Um, this is, oh, no, don't play. Don't play. Okay, perfect. You'll see here that um, we have uh, a bunch of, of metronomes that are stacked on, um, it's actually, I think, probably a piece of foam board and a couple of soda cans. And this is a cool picture of how individual activity and collective states can interplay with one another. So as you watch this, here's what I want, I want you to be thinking as you watch this. You've got five metronomes up there. Those five metronomes are kind of like five of us individually. And you'll see when they kick off the video, each of these metronomes are going to get kicked off and start spinning back and forth. And you'll notice there's not any real cohesion or coherency between them. And that's kind of connected to the fact that like each of us have our own personal individual spiritual walk. God's doing unique and personal and important things in each of us collectively. But if you stack us together in the kind of way where there's enough of a coupling that we can spiritually feel each other, you'll begin to see that what happens between and around all the metronomes begins to work a little differently than things existed when it started. So why don't we go ahead and kick this off. This is only a minute. It's not very long. But I think it'll make the point. And you can just hear it auditorily. You hear the mess? It's kind of all over the place. Now watch, it's actually starting to organize itself just a little bit. Oh, it's getting messy again. Oh man, hold on, this is interesting. Oh, yeah, oh, they're pushing, they're pulling, they're tugging. How's it all going to work out? You hear that? You can see it and you can hear it. You don't hear five metronomes anymore. You hear one metronome. But none of them had to sacrifice their, their tilting. None of them stopped. Right? They're, they're all continuing their individual journey, but there's something happening. Yeah, Department of Physics and Astronomy. Right? <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's something happening among all of them that doesn't undermine individuality, but at the same time creates something cohesive among the whole. That's what I'm talking about. You've got five individuals who have their own spiritual journeys, and at some point they become this thing called church. Well, they're all going the same together because something's happening with the whole which does include and come from the parts, but is not equal to the parts. God wants to do this kind of stuff among us. God is eager to create the kind of spiritual cohesion that we saw there between and among us, just as much as he's eager to do it in our own lives. And you know what? I promise you've actually experienced it. You probably just maybe hadn't had a mental picture for it. We often mislabel it when it happens. 
the, the, the term that we usually mislabel it for is community, actually. Because when we use the word community, if you press someone, we say, what do you really mean when you say that? What they'll say is they'll, think, they'll say things like this. First of all, I feel like I'm part of something bigger than me. It feels like I'm getting caught up into something, right? That's a really interesting thing to say. It, it includes the other people, but somehow it's not quite right to, to attach the name to the other person. You know, it's not like, well, when I say community, what I really mean is Kyle. That's not, that's not it. I can tell Kyle's caught up in it too, but it's not reducible to him, right? So it somehow includes the other people. And it's not only being a part of something bigger than us, but it's actually tremendously life-giving, right? Anyone who's actually experienced that sort of profound sense of what's really happening is God is filling the space around and among and between us. Just like God fills me individually, he sort of fills the cohesive social unit. And when that happens, it's incredibly life-giving. And most people, once they've experienced that in a significant way, will try to spend the rest of their life trying to find their way back to that thing. Just talk to someone who has. I almost guarantee it. It's like, I, I don't even know how to describe it. It was, it was big. It was incredibly life-giving. It was part of me. And you'll notice, without anyone even trying, it will push people toward the things of God. Nobody has to give a sermon. Nobody has to, like, hold the accountability talk. And people will start reading their Bible more. And, and people will start confessing to one another and praying and getting free. There's a spiritual dynamic that happens among and between us. And if you read the New Testament carefully, what I want to suggest is that that dynamic happening is what's called church. Church is when God's filling the space among and around and between us. Yes, of course it requires people. You're not going to be able to do that by yourself. Yeah, you probably need a place to do that, and it wouldn't hurt you to have a building. Makes it a little easier when you have a place that you're guaranteed to be able to get together, <laughs> right? To the extent that you need uh, legal flows for things like money or assets or whatever to facilitate that, sure, have an organization. There's nothing wrong with an organization. But what is it, if we begin to sort of let things float away from the foundation, what is it when we experiment? What is it when we try new things? How do we measure if we're building church? That's what you're trying to measure. You're trying to measure, does this experiment facilitate God amongst his people? Are people getting caught up in that thing together? And you can just ask them th those simple questions like, are you kind of getting caught up in something that's bigger than you but life-giving? <laughs> Not bigger than you in a cult way, but bigger than you in a, <laughs> a life-giving, freeing way, Right? Well, by the way, cults are just the inside out of that. It's when the same thing happens, but a different spirit fills it. Right? And this is why Paul talks, for example, he's like, be careful because principalities will take you captive through their ideologies. Principalities actually filling the space of an ideology, which is, again, providing that kind of cohesive social structure. This is the thing that we're looking for. 
Now, does that happen while we're here? I sure hope so. I experienced some of that when we were singing. There were some of those choruses we were singing, and I'm like, this is coming through us. And I think that's actually part of what's so powerful about worship, is worship is like exactly that picture, isn't it? It's like everybody's like, I'm going to pick my voice, and we're going to sing that song together. Right? So like worship has a way of drawing us into that, right? And so hopefully, yes, that dynamic happens here. But I think it would be a mistake to over-identify that dynamic with gatherings like this. It can happen in many ways and in many places. And the promise of the New Testament is that it does happen in many ways and in many places. Jesus puts it this way in a way that challenges me. Because in my opinion, this isn't anywhere near something that I would call church, but it sounds like Jesus does. He says, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That's exactly the language for exactly that concept. So if it drills down to two or three are gathered in my name, here's Putty's question. Why aren't we trying to facilitate that in our families more intentionally? In any family, you've got two or three that could be gathered in Jesus' name. What would it look like for that dynamic to fill a family? And what would it look like for us as the people of God to actually recognize and honor that as an expression of church, which we never do? And that's a little bit maybe because we're threatened. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, not people here. It's the other people who are less secure than the people here who would be threatened by that kind of thing where it's like, well, you know, I don't know if you get invested in that or you can stay invested here, right, or whatever. What would it look like to actually honor and create the space for that where, yes, that can happen in gatherings like this, but maybe it can also happen within the context of our families and should. Maybe a good way to think of parents is pastors of the family. Maybe that's not a bad thought at all. Why can't it happen within context of our work groups? I guarantee there's at least two or three Christians in most workplaces. Why are we not trying to create the church of X company? The church of Y workplace. You're already there. In fact, you're being paid to be there. It's a good deal. You're actually getting paid (laughs) to facilitate... Maybe church in a workspace, your employee doesn't know they're paying you to do it, but you can do it anyway. If this is what church is, then that gives us kind of a peg to hang things on. And what I love about that peg is that peg fits everywhere in society. It doesn't fit in a building on Sunday mornings. And I think a big part of why we're losing uh, generation by generation is we haven't perceived that church needs to begin to spread out in society and kind of be everywhere, because that's the shape that the world is moving towards, is not clustered, not siloed, not segregated from the rest of the world. It's all this intermixed pile. We as church need to find ourselves in that intermixed pile, and we can. In fact, I would say God's eager to. And so I'm excited because I know this church is doing some experimentation in all of these kind of general directions. Brittany and I have had some encouraging conversations about that. I want to say I am championing you guys as you do that. That's awesome, right? I know there are other churches in this place. My encouragement to you guys is we're running out of time to not be experimenting. 
The Titanic is sinking. It's not worth pretending that we can save the old. So, so like, I'm not saying you blow up the old, right? But let's just fast forward 20 years from now on the same trajectory. We're going to have a lot of closed churches and empty buildings. And a whole lot of people who grew up in church and now have no interest in ever doing it again. Right? So, like, this path is going... <laughs> so, let's branch some things off. Don't blow your church up, but let's get busy doing something different because this doesn't have to be the crash landing of Christianity in the West. It's on track for it, but it doesn't have to be that way. How do I know? Look at the Reformation. Look at the founding of world missions. There have been times when the shape of the world changed and the church changed too. And when we did, we actually had more influence and more effect in the world than we had before. The Reformation is an incredibly powerful example. The principles in the Protestant church that Martin Luther laid out started developing the foundation for democratic government and capitalistic economics. Martin Luther discipled the shape of government and economy in the West. That's discipling the nations. Did the Catholic Church do any of that? Not in that window. If we move forward, we don't have to crash and blow up. If we move forward, we actually have the opportunity to step into the Great Commission in a greater measure. I'm actually excited about this time. I'm excited you guys are experimenting. I want to just sort of be like, dude, let's cheer each other on. Let's swap stories. Let's swap anything we learn. Because there's actually, I believe, a beautiful future ahead. But it doesn't happen if we circle the wagons, right? It happens if we're willing to brave the Oregon Trail, which was my favorite computer game growing up. <laughs> right? Just don't die of dysentery crossing the river, right? <laughs> we as the church can brave the Oregon Trail. How do we know what the trail we're looking for is? Learn to find God among and between us. It's actually every bit as real. We just haven't been looking because we haven't had the category. Learn to look for it, learn to measure it, and learn to be a catalyst for it, to just unlock and release it everywhere you go. That's all the early church did. The apostles are like, we can't get caught up in administration on food distribution because we're busy catalyzing people that God can be doing things among and around and between us. That's got to stay our focus. If we learn to do that, I think there's beautiful days for the church ahead. Let's pray. Everybody stand. Just close your eyes right now. And let's do just a little bit of that individual metronome right now. I want you to tune in to the Lord in this moment. And I want you to just identify, you know, was there something in all of that that the Lord kind of began to stir something or release some life on? Maybe he's inviting you to step out and begin to experiment in some way. 
Maybe he's stirring a passion where you realize, like, hold on, I, I, I don't want to just feel like I'm watching the Titanic sink. I want to I do something with this. Maybe he affirmed something he's already been doing in you. He's, he's already been moving you towards investing in the church dynamic that happens in your family, the church dynamic that happens in your workplace. Maybe he's been whispering to you to set off on a new adventure in some way that you can see could result in creating that in some context where maybe it doesn't live before. Whatever it is that the Lord's stirred in your heart, I just want you to take a minute and, and give God whatever yes you have inside you right now toward that. God, we, we give you the, the hurdles <laughs> that would stand in our way here. We give you the ways we're uh, concerned about the cost of things to us. We give you the uncertainty and maybe anxiety we feel about just setting off in an entirely new direction that we have no idea what it means or what it looks like. But we, we even say that we, we trust you right now in these moments where you're leading us off the trail we know and we just don't know even what that means for our own journey with you. God, we just say that, that we trust you. And, and Holy Spirit, I thank you that like just because we're blinded doesn't mean you're blinded. That when we can't see, it doesn't mean you don't see. You see really well. <laughs> and so God, we, we give you any of the barriers, we give you any of the challenges, we give you any of the things in our way. And God, we just give you the biggest yes we've got inside ourselves right now to what you're welcoming us into. I ask God that you would begin to pour out vision in this whole space that helps us begin to move forward into the unknown <laughs> in a way, God, that empowers us to find the shape that does fit our day. God, we are passionate <laughs> for the land and the time that you've put us in. It's not an accident that we're here, right here, right now. You have chosen us for this moment in this place with these people. And God, I just say like on behalf of all of us, because I think this is what's in our hearts, we are passionate that the people around us would have a great chance to meet you, a great chance to be introduced to your kingdom, a great chance to be swept up in this beautiful thing that you're doing in history, and that you welcome us to join our lives to. We don't want that to be this small thing in the corner that's hard for people to find. We want that to be plentiful and everywhere. We want our communities to not struggle at all to run into you, Jesus. We want it to be hard for them <laughs> to not run into you, Lord. We want the opposite of that. And so, Lord, on behalf of our cities, on behalf of the people around us, on behalf of our, our workplaces and our families and our neighborhoods, God, on behalf of all those people, I ask, would you push us forward to find something that works better than the thing we're doing now? We say our hands are open, God. 
We're not going to hold on to anything that's not what you would have us hold on to. And so I ask God, would you give us the eyes to see the church dynamic that you do among us? Would you help us to identify and recognize that? That we would have moments that we go, oh, this is, this is where Jesus is gathered among us as two or three. Like he's here. I see that now. He's here with us in our family. He's here with us in this work group. He's here with us in this Sunday morning gathering. God, give us the eyes to see that so that we can learn to identify it. We can learn to cultivate it. We can learn, God, to make the, to plow the fields well that you can grow it by your spirit among us. God, we give you our yes. Teach us how and lead us forward, God, for the good of the communities around us. In Jesus' name. I'd like, um, as I think we end at noon here, right? I don't know where Brittany went. Thank you, whoever said um, I'd like to just have a chance for people to personally respond. If you have something that the Lord has been stirring that's concrete in this space. The Lord's been stirring you toward your family. The Lord's been stirring you toward something in your work group. The Lord's been stirring you towards X or Y or Z. If in some space he's been pushing you toward, I need to do something that cultivates this thing we're talking about among a group of people. I believe that's something he's bubbling up all over the place, and he's doing it kind of in an untraditional way in a lot of ways right now. If that's you, I'd just love to invite you to come up. And I know we've got like a ministry team that would love to, to pray. I just think it's important that we make the space for that and that we give God a big yes. Like, God, I'm, I'm hearing that.